Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Deanna Sheridan. Uh, I'm the VP of Legal at Three Step Sports. Uh, and um, I'm so honored to be here today and to moderate this panel. Um, I'm looking forward to what I'm sure will be a really um, fruitful discussion. Um, before we dig in and before I introduce our panelists, I'd like to uh, thank the diversity, equity, and inclusion section of the Boston Bar Association um, as our sponsor. And I'd especially like to thank Trennan, uh, Brown, and Noah uh, Williams for their support as our BBA partners. I'd also like to thank our co-chairs, Bill Gabovich uh, and Jamil Moore, as well as a number of affinity bars who are the co-sponsor for this event, the Mass LGBTQ Bar Association, the South Asian Bar Association of Greater Boston, the Asian American Lawyers Association of Massachusetts, the Women's Bar Association, the Mass Black Women Attorneys Association, Hispanic National Bar Association, and the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association. Thank you all for your support. So I'd like to introduce our panelists uh, on the topic today of the rise of uh, anti-LGBTQ laws across the U.S. and what the impact is um, in Massachusetts. And uh, first, I'd like to introduce Jennifer Levi, the Senior Director of Transgender and Queer Rights at GLAAD, as well as uh, Chris Fudo, who's the partner and co-chair of the Labor and Employment Practice at Foley Hoag. So welcome to you both. Um, so I'll give a little bit of background uh, before we dig into our questions, uh, and then um, you know, feel free uh, participants to submit uh, questions throughout the duration of the event, and we'll be, be sure to address some of those at the end if we have time. So in recent years, uh, as everyone uh, you know who's interested in attending here today knows, that extremist lawmakers in a number of states across the country have continued to advance uh, a record-breaking number of anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures. Uh, so we're here not only to discuss uh, the impact of those laws in various states, but the hostile climate that uh, it has created and what the impact is on Massachusetts communities, uh, organizations, families, and colleagues. Um, so the, uh, to give a little bit of context, uh, and I'll defer to Jennifer on the updated numbers, she'll have a little bit more um, background information for us in terms of what this uh, really looks like across the country. Um, more uh, anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced in state houses in 2023 than in each of the previous five years, uh, which is a distressing uh, number. And uh, as many of us know, the majority of these bills have targeted the transgender and non-binary community with the largest increase seen in LGBTQ erasure bills that strip away the legal protections that were previously granted to LGBTQ plus people and youth. 
Um, and uh, in addition to those types of bills, we'll get into some of the other bills and laws that have been passed, uh, such as uh, laws either requiring or allowing the misgendering of transgender students, uh, such as the bathroom bills and preventing transgender students from playing sports targeting drag performances, creating licenses to discriminate, uh, and censoring uh, school curriculum, including books that are included in school libraries and community libraries. Um, so in order to dig into a little bit of this, I'll turn the my first question over to Jennifer and say, Jennifer, can you give us a little bit more of an uh, understanding of what this landscape looks like and what some of these trends look like from 2023? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you, Deanna and Chris, and to the Boston Bar Association for hosting this important event. And um, yeah, I mean, I really, it's so important to for people to have a, a, a deeper understanding of what we're seeing nationally, and then, of course, to be able to connect it to some of the trends that we're seeing in Massachusetts. Uh, the number of anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced in the legislature over the last session and last two sessions in states nationwide is is, is staggering. I mean, 700 plus bills. It's really even hard to take in the degree of um, hostility that the community is has been subjected to. Um, you know, the good news is that that the the vast, vast, vast majority of those bills have been. Uh, defeated and they're growing efforts to defeat them. But unfortunately, there has been a really dramatic number of anti-LGBTQ bills uh, passed into law across the country. And I thought it would be helpful at the outset to really get uh, to um, provide some kind of understanding of what those laws look like at a more granular level, because just the numbers, I think, can just be overwhelming. And, and um, it is so important for, for people to understand at a, a deeper level what we are seeing. So I'm gonna put those laws into a number of uh, different broad categories. I will say that one of the most ve vehemently aggressive trends that we have seen has been the passage of laws in close to now two dozen states, almost 24 states that prohibit um, the provision of healthcare, gender transition related healthcare to transgender minors. This happened at a remarkably rapid pace. Um, the first state to, to um, pass such a law was Arkansas. Um, and there have been you know, a dramatic increase in the number of states over the last two years, but also a dramatic increase in the uh, penalties that attach to their violation. So they started out by you know, prohibiting and regulating um, doctors and medical professionals, the the intensity was increased by uh, in the state of Alabama, uh, adding 20 year up to 20 year criminal felony uh, provisions for violation of the laws. It impacts parents and families, as I know we'll get into to talking about that. So that's kind of one category of cases, the prohibition of gender transition related health care. And we actually saw um, this last session, the first state, Florida, to actually add restrictions on access to medical care for transgender adults. And that I, I fear is a trend that we may see continue as well. A lot of folks have been following uh, the hostility directed, particularly at transgender athletes. Um, uh, over 20 states now have 
categorical and sweeping bans on transgender students participating in, in uh, sports um, at in schools. Um, so that's an, another the the limitation uh, limitations on access to both facilities and programs in schools is another category of cases, including uh, bans on uh, transgender students accessing shared restrooms in schools. So there's close to ten states now that have statewide restrictions on access for transgender students to restroom facilities. And as I said, there's um, over 20 uh, state laws that prohibit, categorically prohibit transgender students from participating in sports consistent with their uh, lived identities and experiences. Another large category of uh, laws that we have seen passed are sometimes referred to as don't say gay laws or don't say gay or trans laws. Um, Florida was one of the first states to pass these kinds of laws, but we've seen them also in growing numbers across the country. And these are both curricular restrictions, but they're also um, conversation restrictions in, in classrooms. And I want to talk about uh, kind of challenges to some of these laws. And so I'll circle back to what we're, we're seeing on that in uh, just a minute. But the last kind of broad category of cases of laws that we have seen passed in states are um, laws that require teachers or school professionals to disclose uh, either a student's transgender identity or even their gender exploration in schools. So to require uh, teachers or administrators to provide that information to parents, even in circumstances where it would um, uh, put the the student in harm's way or you know undermine the supports that or weaken the supports that schools are provide generally to students in um, fostering healthy development and equal educational opportunities. So those are kind of the broad categories of cases, but I wanted to also say a little bit about what we are seeing in terms of legal challenges to those state laws, just to kind of hit on, again, some of the, the broad legal themes that we see growing out of this nationwide backlash against LGBTQ people. So I, I've been um, uh, very heavily involved in uh, challenges in two states, to the uh, statewide bans on medical treatment for transgender minors, um, both. Uh, so the cases I've been involved with are in both Florida and in Alabama. As I said, Alabama has that criminal penalty and uh, Florida has a whole different range of penalties. But as I said, is the first state where we've seen restrictions on adult uh, health care as well. And number of these state laws uh, have been challenged with some very uh, uh, tremendous initial success. At least uh, six district courts uh, issued preliminary injunctions preventing those laws from going into effect. And the basic legal claims challenging them were both uh, were based both on equal protection that the laws single out health care for transgender people to you know, ban it without any justification. This is treatment that it's been well established and provided for decades. Um, but the other challenge to those laws has been based on their disruption, their intrusion into parental autonomy. Uh, you know, it's one of the might be the the first recognized fundamental right under substantive due process protections, which is parental autonomy. And so it's 
uh, that has been a basis for challenging those laws, again, to um, significant success in the district courts. Uh, what we are seeing, though, most recently, this is really within the last six weeks, is uh, appellate decisions reversing, this is both in the Sixth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit, reversing uh, trial court decisions. And I'm sure later in the program, if we have time, I can sort of, we can talk about where that law is likely to head. Uh, there have been a number of challenges to statewide sports bans, and again, with some very significant initial successes in those challenges, in part because of uh, district courts recognizing that there's no justification for these sweeping categorical bans. They don't look at all at um, kind of different circumstances uh, presented by different student athletes. The, the uh, kind of category of laws that prohibit School-based discussions about gay and transgender issues is an area where it's been difficult to challenge those laws. And the reason is that they are written in facially neutral ways. So for example, those laws prohibit, I mean, this is so remarkable to me, I'll just say, um, they prohibit, you know, discussion, uh, discussions related to sexual orientation, you know, so uh, really completely uh, shutting down the ability of students to speak about their lives uh, and others in the school to speak about their lives. But the, the legal hurdle is that they are written in a facially neutral way, not singling out on the face of those bans, LGBTQ people. Um, but of course, they're being used to stifle discussion about LGBTQ people's lives and about any topics related to LGBTQ people. Uh, they are bans that rely on social norms about the visibility of primarily of non-LGBTQ people's lives and thinking about conversations around um, LGBTQ and queer issues being special or unique or unusual. And so the laws, even though they're written in a facially neutral way, are being used to dramatically shift school climate and school culture, but they have been very difficult to challenge. The one lawsuit that has uh, was brought in Florida has met a lot of initial procedural hurdles. So, kind of, kind of keep an eye on on how that develops in the future. Um, I will say that there have been challenges to uh, actually there have been challenges to school district policies that prohibit transgender students access to restrooms. Um, and those have had some initial successes. There's actually some negative case law as well. Um, so division in terms of the outcome on, on those cases. And we haven't yet seen challenges to these um, the, the statewide bans. We've seen challenges so far to the district level policies. So I, it's another area to, to track to see how that um, develops. And you know, the the in the last area, we are definitely seeing growing numbers of lawsuits brought against schools or threatened lawsuits brought against schools with protective policies that um, foster teachers and administrators supporting transgender students in schools. But it's definitely an area where we've also seen um uh conservative uh, legal organizations kind of looking for 
parents who are hostile or unsupportive of transgender and non-binary students to challenge those um, um, school policies that are are supportive. And that's an issue that's gone uh, up actually to the First Circuit here in a case out of Ludlow, um, Massachusetts. So what I want to say, and actually let me, if it just indulge for another minute, I want to put up uh, a map because yeah, please do. I think that's a, a helpful visual for us to understand the scope of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, so what you have to really understand about this this map is that the the colors basically correlate to the numbers of laws that different states have passed. And so that kind of green stripe over Georgia is because Georgia just has one of these anti-LGBTQ laws. And you can see from the guide on the right that uh, the other colors reflect multiple laws that have been passed in these states. And it's important both to get a sense of the sweep of the country that has been impacted by this you know, uh, 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 reactionary um, effort across the country, but but what I really want to highlight is that in some states, I mean, Florida, Tennessee, these are these are states where just the number of anti-LGBTQ laws has grown so substantially that it is having a very dramatic effect on the lives of uh, children and families and um, uh, supporters and people with LGBTQ people in their lives. So it's pretty dramatic. I'm going to stop the share, but I'm happy to share it through the BBA if people are interested. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. That's really helpful um, and sobering. Um, so I, you touched on a couple of the trends that are a little bit different in 2023. So, for example, the way that uh, some of the laws are written, um, it's a, or the bills are written, it's a little bit more challenging than um, some of the past uh, fights have been in terms of finding some of this hostile um, legislation. Are there any specific trends that you see kind of coming uh, in 2023 into 2024 that have been slightly different than what we've been seeing uh, in the past five years? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, as I, I mean, I think what we're seeing every year are um, uh, bills that include even more dramatic penalties for the violations of these underlying restrictive laws. Certainly, like I said, in the healthcare context, we're going to see that grow. Um, you know, we have examples of that from the efforts over, you know, decades post Roe and pre Dobbs in really uh, 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 passing more and more restrictions on both access to abortion, but also funding for it. And the re I just identified it because it's kind of a, a model, a playbook that I think is being drawn from to expand on the restrictions of access for gender transition related health care. I think we will probably see growing numbers of efforts to restrict that care for adults again, which I think is, is really, really surprising. And then, yeah, growing numbers of these laws being passed in those states that have fewer uh, you know, fewer of the laws originally, but really expanding on them. And I think, and I think growing, and, and sorry, and growing sorry. statewide restrictions on schools, being able to uh, adopt and enforce uh, supportive policies. I mean, you know, there's states in which there are really, you know, significant pockets of progressive supportive schools that have, uh, will be facing statewide restrictions that require them to roll back protections. 
Um, I think that's a really important to note. So I'm glad that you brought that up, that even though just for purposes of uh, keeping things within an hour long discussion format, um, for today's focus, we were really focused on these anti-LGBTQ laws, um, but it's part uh, clearly of a much bigger framework in terms of peeling back, um, you know, the civil rights of citizens in uh, numerous groups across the country. And uh, the BBA DEI committee uh, will be having additional programming on that throughout 2023 and 2024. Um, but this was a really important uh, focus point for us to, to start those conversations uh, with. So I'm glad that you brought up that context. Um, so Chris, I know that context is not lost on you as you advise your clients on a regular basis. Um, and um, before I pose my question to you, I'm just gonna ask that um, Noah and Trenin um, post our survey question. Uh, to guide us into the next um, set of questions. Um, and, you know, there's probably some folks in Massachusetts that think, well, these are all happening in other states. We don't really have to worry about uh, the impact on Massachusetts residents or organizations. Um, but clearly that's not the case. So I'm curious to um, see some of the things that uh, you've been dealing with the most recently with your clients um, and the challenges that they've been facing in the onset of these laws. Right. And, and, and importantly, too, uh, the Jennifer, um, the, the, the survey of these types of laws that Jennifer has, has described, um, also notably don't typically apply to employment. So um, not only are we in Massachusetts with Massachusetts employers saying, okay, we, we're not now restricted. They're not, we're not passing these laws in Massachusetts. Um, but they typically, you know, aren't even things that employers have to now get in compliance into in other states for multi-state employers because they, they don't, they're not related to employment. But I think they have two, I think they have two real, um, significant impacts for employers, multi-state employers. Um, one is you now have a, you know, the, the, there is an increased feeling among LGBTQ plus employees in these states who are now feeling alienated and are feeling unsafe and feeling under attack. And so employers are have to deal with the consequences of having remote employees, maybe, or employees at sort of satellite offices who are now in this position where they are in a state that they think is, is, is that is making them rightfully so feel hostile towards them. Um, so employers have to figure out what they're going to do for these employees. Um, the other key, I think, that this has had for employers is as these laws are passed and these laws become discussed as part of the political discourse, which they are. This is a national political part of a national political movement that is um, that is hostile to uh, to members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, there is increased discussion of these topics in the workplace, and that's not limited to these states where these are passed. These these, these topics are discussed in Massachusetts. And there are increased whenever there's this increased political discourse within the within the workspace, there's always a concern that employees in Massachusetts um, are going to be subjected to um, increased 
comments or behavior um, that would be offensive to them. Or frankly, as these laws become more prevalent, people who hold views that are similar to the people who are passing these laws feel emboldened to express their opinions. And if that's happening in the workplace, it becomes an employer's issue. I just want to throw in one thing. Um, yeah, I, I forgot to mention, I mean, there's a law that Florida recently passed. We're you know, likely to see this uh, uh, elsewhere that prohibits access to um, uh, government uh, restrooms in government facilities for transgender people consistent with their gender identity. And it has had dramatic uh, effects on employment for, you know, firefighters, first responders. Um, and uh, just made me think of that, Chris, that there there are there are ways in, in which these, these laws are having even direct impacts um, on employment. That was one example. And, and another I was thinking of is that there are states now that have rolled back laws that allow transgender people to change their gender markers. And that has, you know, created layers of complexities in the workplace, even around documents and records, and has resulted in the disclosure of people's transgender identity because of people's inability to uh, provide employers with uh, identity documentation that is consistent with their lived experience and with their role in workplaces. So. Yeah, that's going to have a huge impact. Um, thank you for um, uh, bringing that up. I think that's actually uh, a good segue to one of the questions that we've received from the audience. Um, uh, before we move on to you know some of the other topics, and you know just kind of continuing to cover what we're seeing and what these trends are. Uh, we had a question, um, and Jennifer, I think this is uh, probably, um, you know, sort of in your jurisdiction. Could you uh, discuss the intersection of bans on transgender care with people who are intersex or DST, um, specifically whether, you know, any of these carve-outs for care might render the laws uh, facially invalid? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, a helpful sort of distinction in the midst of some of these broader um, discussion points. Absolutely. And I don't know if others can see the questions, but there was a second question, which I may wrap into the first question as well about whether there are um, uh, legitimate nuances to take into account uh, in determining whether these statewide bans on medical gender transition related care for adolescents uh, is appropriate. So I, I, I thank you so much for, for both of those questions. And, you know, the first one rightly focuses on the fact that these state laws that prohibit gender transition related treatment for adolescents carve out permissible use of the same banned medications in other contexts. So a couple of things I want to say about that, and you know, there's no reason most people would know this, and that is that um, gender transition treatments for adolescents have been uh, researched extensively. Um, there are the consensus position uh, across the medical establishment that the treatment is safe. And effective. And just to be super clear, we're talking about two different kinds of medications for, and this is only for transgender adolescents. So, so in order to receive 
treatment for gender transition, um, a transgender adolescent has to have already started puberty. So there's no treatment for you know young young kids. There's the, that is provided. This is only for um, transgender adolescents, and the the treatments are puberty blockers and hormones. Um, and those same medications are used regularly for other medical conditions, including, as the question asked, uh, intersex conditions or what is sometimes referred to as DSDs, disorders of um, sexual development. And 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 the reason why it has been honestly as easy as it has been to demonstrate the unconstitutionality of these statewide bans is because the strength of the uh, medical guidelines, both for the safety and efficacy of these treatments being used for transgender adolescents. And what the question reflects is that, um, you know, there's that the fact that these medications can be used for non-transgender adolescents and non-transgender people, and that these laws don't regulate those treatments in that context, highlights how unprincipled and, un and unfair uh, these exclusions are and how they are really just targeting transgender adolescents. So, I mean, just so people know, you know, that um, there are uh, um, uh, there are medical guidelines issued by the International Professional Association focused on transgender health. The Endocrine Society has guidelines for treatment and all of that rests on uh, very solid scientific evidence that shows the safety and efficacy of medical treatment. So I kind of wanted to answer both the first question. Yes, absolutely. The fact that there uh, these laws carve out the permissible use of the same medications for other contexts underscores that the laws are targeted and focused uh, just on, you know, limiting access to treatment for transgender people. And to the second question, th the fact that the bans are so sweeping and 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 don't take into account how well established these treatments are underscores again why we see the district courts uh, after hearing you know evidence determining that those laws are unconstitutional. Thank you, Jennifer, for addressing those questions. Um, Chris, we've got a couple of questions that have come in that um, I, I think that you could assist us with. Um, uh, two, specifically with regard to, uh, you know, religious objections or religious rights um, mm -hmm. and how, you know, employers specifically, as well as medical care providers, we can get into that in the second question, um, you know, how are we supposed to navigate accommodating folks' religious uh, rights um, in this clash of requiring religious accommodations with the rights of LGBTQ plus employees? So I'd be curious to know if you have a, um, you know, sort of a specific case that you might be able to refer to or a specific client challenge that you might have assisted with. Yeah, I mean, so I, I can't off the top of my head think of a, a specific case in this issue. I mean, the, the most recent issue, the, the most recent um, litigation uh, over this most recent significant decision in in a similar situation was in the um, or, 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 or an analogous situation was in the, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. But that was not in an employment context. That was somebody saying that religious objection prevented them from performing this. But I think that uh, performing a service. Um, that, I mean, probably informs of like how I think that the current Supreme Court would address this issue. Two things, that case came down the same time that the Supreme Court ruled that 
um, the standard for um, granting um, for, for establishing undue hardship for religious accommodation is the same as it is under the ADA. It had previously been interpreted that it was less onerous than it was under the ADA. Um, so now um, employers are required to provide people with reasonable accommodations for religious objections. However, I mean, I think it just truly is limited to situations where employers have policies that truly would run afoul of an employee, you know, where compliance with the policy would run afoul of the employee's um, uh, sincerely held religious belief or practice. So one of these issues might come up with a mandatory training on um, on LGBTQ issues. Um, I'm not a fan of mandatory trainings, um, you know, on specific issues. But I would say it's all going to be about how you tailor your program. Now, if you have a general program that talks about what the law is and what employers' rules are for the expectations of employees treating everybody with respect, and 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 then I don't see how somebody could say that they shouldn't have to participate in that type of training um, because they have a religious objection that says they don't believe in you know same-sex marriage or they think that. Um, that, uh, you know, being uh, being um, a member of the, L, you know, acting in a way that is consistent with being a member of the LGBTQ plus community um, and having a same sex relationship is somehow, uh, you know, against their religion. Um, no one, no employer is requiring that people accept, you know, their change their personal beliefs. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot more religious accommodation complaints um, uh, coming coming in because of the new relaxed um, standard that the Supreme Court um, introduced. But I would say to employers, you know, as long as you're doing the work and documenting sort of what the what the request is um, and what the accommodation is sought, and you're providing some type of accommodation, if it in fact does conflict with the sincerely held religious belief or purpose, you're likely going to be okay. But Employers should hold the line and say if if a request doesn't meet the standard, I mean you're not then then there's no accommodation is required and and we may have a litigation over that issue. But I, I would say you can't allow employees to use rel their religious beliefs as a way to sort of, to to quash to to quash um, employee employee uh, employer DEI efforts as it relates to LG the issues related to uh, the uh, LGBTQ plus community. I think that's helpful, um, Biden, uh, and, um, you know, especially helpful for those of us who are in-house as we're trying to navigate some of these accommodation requests and, you know, questions that come up on a, a daily basis um, for our employee base. Um, and I'm curious to get to the next question on this topic. And um, Jennifer, I'll bring you into the mix because I think that this is probably um you know, a, a good discussion topic. How does that apply in a medical care context when you have a doctor or, or another healthcare provider with a sincerely held religious belief? And, um, you know, it, depending on the state, you know, they don't want to provide that gender affirming medical care. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, we there is well-established, you know, First Amendment protections that 
for you know around which there's there is um, well-developed case law to apply in individual circumstances. I will say that you know where we're seeing, I think, more challenges and more questions about that is around um, public. Well, sorry, religious institutions that provide you know healthcare broadly that are commercial institutions, um, uh, which are which 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 in which like what we're seeing is for example transgender people turned away from from general care you know because of um like a, 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 both broad misunderstanding about treatment broad misunderstanding about transgender people's lives there's truthfully if there are individual medical providers who object to providing care you know that's not really where the the challenges are so much coming up um and i think there you know are protections for for individuals it's it's more about um institutions that you know are seeking to turn away transgender people we've seen you know we've seen some of those challenges there's actually been recent challenge even to the non-discrimination provisions of the affordable care act um, and, you know, a, a broad scale challenge to regulations that have been issued saying that the Affordable Care Act prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ people in healthcare, And then a broad religious objection brought by providers who haven't even provided care, but who anticipate providing care. And so, you know, we, we will see how the courts address those those issues. And I think Chris is right. You know, we've seen trends both from Masterpiece Cake to 303 Creative potentially creating broader and broader uh, exceptions to non-discrimination laws um, in a broad context, potentially even reaching a commercial context. So I don't, I mean, folks can make their own predictions in terms of where that case law uh, is, is going. And for sure, we've you know seen, um, well, that that's what I think the trend is coming out of this Supreme Court, which is more expansive exceptions to non-discrimination laws. Thank you. Um, and then we have one more question um, that I think you could probably help us field, uh, Jennifer. Um, and uh, it, it points to growing evidence of uh, the potential negative effects of transitioning treatment that have led to the closing of uh, the premier uh, transgender treatment facility in the UK and a ban on treatment in Sweden. Um, you know, I don't, this is based on the question, I don't have any, um, you know, site, sources to cite here. Um, are you aware of these, Jennifer, and how that fits into sort of like the assessment within the US and... Um, yeah. You know, how does that impact the decision making process for, you know, some of this legislation? I so appreciate the question because it really represents the misinformation that has been propagated uh, through both the you know efforts to pass these laws and I think through um, misreporting. So just to be clear, there are there are no bans on the provision of gender transition related care to adolescents in either the UK or Sweden. That's just untrue. And that fact, I mean, that was a factual finding of um, a number of different courts, including the district court in Alabama on those specific issues. Uh, it is, it is uh, true that in the UK, there was an evaluation of how effective the provision of medical care was when it was provided through a single um, 
a, a gender specialty clinic called the Tavistock Clinic. And uh, the evaluation by the National Institute of Health in the UK resulted actually in a recommendation that the care be provided more extensively in a, in a decentralized system that the UK actually follow the provision of the system of care that has is the US system, which is to have you know, gender specialty clinics in a number of different places, because what happened in the UK is there were, you know, ex there were long waits, um, there was, you know, an inability for people to get care. And so what we're actually seeing, it's not just the UK and Sweden, there's, you know, the same recommendations coming out of, um, Finland and, and France and Spain and others, which is to actually follow the, the methodology for the provision of care in the U.S., which is gender specialty centers providing care for transgender adolescents through a multidisciplinary and rigorous assessment and the provision of care. But I appreciate the question so much because, again, this is an area where there's a lot of public discussion and it doesn't always contain the accurate information. And it's one of the reasons, you know, why uh, we've seen, again, injunctions issued by six dis district courts. In, in, you know, and I'll just say, I mean, there were uh, three Trump appointed judges out of those six, you know, so it's really across the spectrum of the source of appointment that when these district judges have actually had the opportunity to evaluate the um, science and information, they have banned, uh, they've been joined these bans. Um, and I'm sorry, I just want to tell this other, <laughs> this other part of the the litigation, which is in Florida, uh, where there, uh, you know, the, a judge enjoined the uh, ban on access to healthcare for transgender adolescents. There had been a prior trial because the state of Florida passed a rule that prohibited uh, Medicaid coverage for gender transition related care. And there was really powerful testimony from a former employee of the state healthcare agency that issued a biased and flawed report that there was a dramatic departure from the usual processes in ultimately developing a report that included the kind of misinformation that's reflected in that question. And it's so clear that these bans are part of a targeted politicized effort to um, both ex you know, expand support around a number of other political issues, but also to, to do it um, on the, I'll say, you know, by, by targeting a, a vulnerable uh, group that that doesn't have the the uh, that is largely misunderstood and you know we've seen so much more educational efforts and popular representation around transgender people's lives and so in a way it's not surprising to see this kind of backlash but it is so important to have the accurate information when we talk about it. Jennifer, that's a really helpful segue into um, addressing the cultural impact of these laws and all of the legislation that's been introduced, um, both in terms of, uh, you know, what we're looking at on the individuals that are directly impacted um, by this changing and hostile, you know, sort of climate Um but, um, and Chris, I'll bring you into this discussion as well. How, what's the impact on the organizations 
um, because, you know, whether your employees are the parents of LGBTQ plus youth or, you know, it's LGBTQ plus employees or it's just simply employees who care and are allies and want to make sure um, that they're concerned in doing something, you know, for their friends and families and colleagues. Um, that there has been a cultural impact. And so I think it's important to address that. So um, I'd love to turn that question over to both of you just as a discussion point. Maybe we can kind of start nationally and then pull back into what that looks like within Massachusetts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'm happy to jump in on this. And just my my view is because I'm in a I'm a labor and employment attorney. Mine comes from the view of 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 what employers are thinking about or doing. I think that uh, um, this year has been a a a really difficult one for employers who have really strong um, core values and missions that relate to diversity, equity, inclusion, and all types of diversity, equity, inclusion. But particularly for efforts related to um, LGBTQ plus individuals. Um, so I, I think that employers have responded in a number of ways. So um, I think employers are thinking are, are, are doing what part of what they've done, uh, at least ones that have been committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion previously are, you know, establishing um, or maintaining or, you know, doubling down on their um, employee resource groups. So making sure groups are available to um, people who are identified as LGBTQ+, or people who are family members or friends of people who are LGBTQ+, who want to support them and think of ways that we can do that. Um, I've seen employers, uh, one big story um, that came out of um, uh, recently in employment circles is that um, um, some employers are considering relocation benefits for employees who are located in states where they are um, where these uh, hostile laws have been passed. Um, I think indeed uh, was one of the, um, was, uh, was can seen as sort of the, the leader in that type, offering that type of benefit. I mean, that raises a whole host of issues for legal compliance because it's an employee benefit, similar to the, the, the employee benefit issues that arose after the Dobbs decision came out and people were offering and employers wanted to offer um, benefits to employees who needed to travel out of the out of out of state in order to um, receive to receive reproductive health care um, uh, that was not available to them in their states anymore. So um, those are two ways that I've seen employers really doing it. But also, I think it's about more about like doubling down on your DEI efforts. And it's fine for employers to say, regardless of what these laws go into place, what regardless of what the of the religious beliefs or other political beliefs of individual employees are, employers are allowed to, even um, you know, as DEI efforts have been challenged at, 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 at the at every state, federal, local level, employers are allowed to have core values. And Diversity and equity and inclusion are, are if your that is your organization's core value, you are still allowed to have that core value, and you are still allowed to express that core value and adopt measures that support that 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 allow you to implement that those core values. That's really helpful, um, Jennifer. What's the uh, that impact on communities? Um, you know, there has to, this is obviously so political in every element of, you know, whether it's impacting 
an organization, uh, you know, a city or an individual, um, you know, these have ramifications. And so uh, what are you seeing that hasn't sort of risen to the level of uh, legislation, but you're seeing this cultural impact on, you know, some of the communities across the U.S.? Yeah, um, let me talk a little bit about that. I did just want to follow up to Chris's point. I mean, this is so much a uh, a business issue. Uh, you know, we are hearing regularly from families across the country who are trying to figure out how to provide care for their children. And I don't know, I was just last week watching, if people haven't seen it, there's a beautiful documentary about the Loving Case um, you know, and Mildred uh, and and Richard talking about the pains of having to leave the community that they grew up in, where their families were, where all of their supports were, because, you know, they fell in love and got married. And just that it, it drove home to me how hard it is for people to live and thrive in a community, in a state where there are multiple hostile laws that are targeting individuals and families. And I guess, Chris, I, you know, appreciate you talking about the relocation benefits. And, you know, I, I do think there will be growing challenges for businesses to figure out, you know, what do they do when they have a longtime family member who learns that they have a transgender child, right? It's not something that parents necessarily anticipate or know is, is coming. Mm -hmm. And how do businesses respond when we've got, you know, that map of half the country with hostile laws against, uh, you know, particular communities. So it's not even just about the employees, that's mm -hmm. enough, but, but it just so magnified by the impact on families. So, and, and, and I have to say, it's going to really impact the way employers, uh, businesses look at where they want to expand to or where they want to have locations. I mean, there's been a lot of a lot of these states that may be at issue may have, you know, re be really attractive for a lot of reasons in terms of, you know, labor being cost being cheaper, more favorable tax right, uh, tax um, systems. But at the same time now, employers are having to make real decisions about where they want to have a footprint. And I think these laws are really impacting employer uh, businesses' decisions about where they're going to be. And I assume that impacts recruitment efforts. I mean, younger people are looking to, you know, where can they live and thrive and build a family and making decisions about where they'll apply for jobs. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we are still in the, I don't know where we're going to be with remote work. I mean, we're still, you know, we're still trying to figure out, I mean, obviously remote work has exploded since the pandemic and it continues to be a big presence, but I do think a lot of employers are really getting, want to get back to the idea of having a physical workspace. So I don't know if that type of recruitment of uh, for remote workers is going to be continue. And so, yeah, absolutely. If people are going to have to live in the locate in the in, where they were, they're going to have to figure out um, if it's a place they want to be. I want to look at these answers now. Thanks for putting them up. Yeah, thank you. I thought that was um, interesting that those some of those answers really corresponded with exactly what you're both seeing uh, in, in terms of, you know, that impact on the you know, everyday lives and, you know, experiences that um, our employees and their families are facing. 
Yeah, just picking up on the, the the last of those answers about the impact that it has on, you know, people in terms of the sentiment in their communities. It's definitely something that we're seeing, uh, including in Massachusetts, which is growing uh, divisions in community or hostilities uh, directed against the LGBTQ community. I mean, just as an example, you know, in North Brookfield, there was a pride permit that had been issued that was... Um, created limitations on the programming that could be included within that uh, public pride event. The ACLU actually, you know, uh, uh, responded to that and, I, you know, alerted North Brookfield to the First Amendment problems with the restrictions that have been placed on the permit. And it, ultimately those restrictions were rescinded. But it's an example of the ways in which the growing national hostility is playing out in local communities, including in Massachusetts, uh, Amherst, there was a lot of public attention about the lack of response in the Amherst public schools to uh, to complaints that were brought by transgender students and their families relating to administrators' hostility toward those students. It resulted in a dramatic change in both the, uh, the, the school district administration, but also in the, um, the local uh, school committee. And, um, you know, we have uh, at, at CLAD have heard growing reports of um, schools that are, are, are struggling to maintain and preserve LGBTQ uh, materials in libraries because of challenges to, I mean, books being in uh, school libraries. So, it is, I mean, it's definitely creating school climate issues, community climate challenges, and I think we'll just see that continue as the the national climate has been shifting. And that actually, Jennifer, oh, reminds me of another issue too, which is, um, you employers are going to need to have be really grappling with their um, policies regarding off-duty social media use. Every town is having these issues right now. And people jump online and people say things. And often these people say things uh, are very identifiable and you know you, nothing is hidden in the, in, the, in the internet anymore. You can truly be linked to somebody's, uh, you know, somebody's employer really quickly. Don't be surprised if you're gonna start getting emails saying, we just want you to know what your employee is saying on this community Facebook profile, this community Facebook page, or you won't believe what this person said at a at a meeting. Do, does your business ascribe to these values? And employers are going to have to decide, okay, does this person's conduct comport to our values? And are we going to start taking action against employees if they engage in conduct off duty that doesn't comply with our values? Um, you know, these are these issues are so hotly contested, even here in Massachusetts. I know it's surprising we don't have these laws passed, but Ma Massachusetts is not is not this monolithic political set <laughs> of uh, viewpoints. We are a more liberal state and have, you know, those positions toward to um, towards progressive uh, progressiveness and particularly on these issues related to LGBTQ basic rights for LGBTQ plus individuals. You know, the majority swings that way, but there are going to be dissenting voices out there and they may be your employees and they may be doing it publicly. Thank you. That's a really helpful reminder. Um, 
And on that note, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I don't want to end doom and gloom uh, in terms of the, the bleak picture that we've painted. Um, and, you know, in terms of calls to action, how can people get involved? And um, feel free, both of you, to jump in with recommendations, both in uh, specific ways that we can use our law degrees in order to, um, you know, provide advocacy support. Um, I'm going to post the last survey question uh, here um, and see, just out of curiosity, what our audience is interested in. Um, there's a lot of different ways to volunteer. Um, people can donate their time, donate money and resources, uh, and then, of course, pro bono legal services. So I'm sure the group would love to hear from you. There's been a couple of questions from the audience on specific ways that people can get involved in order to provide support. Yeah, I love it. I knew that we wouldn't have enough time at, at this at this webinar and that we would just be scratching the surface. So um, uh, I do appreciate the chance. So one thing is people who are interested in donating pro bono services, please reach out to uh, me or anyone at GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, uh, www.gladglad.org. Uh, we have a you know, number of different ways that lawyers can get involved in our legal work. And I also wanted to say, it, I agree, it's not gloom and doom. This is like a moment of opportunity. I was looking actually at the bills pending in Massachusetts that would provide more protections for LGBTQ people and beyond. So there's a whole range of bills focused on ensuring greater healthcare access for LGBTQ people, including transgender people, but including people with HIV AIDS, including um, ensuring, uh, reducing barriers to people getting coverage for PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, there's a really important bill that will likely have a hearing soon, I'll just say that, which is the Massachusetts Parentage Act, which would provide strong protections um, for uh, LGBTQ families and beyond. I mean, there's a whole other webinar we could have about what the Supreme uh, the the Supreme Court uh, how the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs is being used to target family protections for LGBTQ people and beyond. So people can uh, reach out to learn more about the Massachusetts Parentage Act. Uh, there's a number of other bills that would protect transgender and non-binary people's ability to ensure that all of their records are consistent and reflect who they are um, and beyond. So please reach out. Uh, there's, you know, GLAD is just one of the many organizations in Massachusetts, uh, you know, the ACLU, the Anti-Defamation League, um, Mass Equality, and Fenway Health. I mean, many others are involved in all these issues. So there's lots of opportunities to plug into the work. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, in addition to that, I know that some of the folks uh, responded on the survey that they're looking for ways to donate or volunteer services in other ways, in addition uh, to advocacy and pro bono legal services. And um, I would like to highlight the Trevor Project as an organization that specifically provides support to youth who are uh, LGBTQ+, um, so volunteering on a call line or donating to their services. Uh, and there's a national group called Lawyers for Good Government that addresses a number of these uh, civil rights protections issues in uh, a lot of areas. Um, and so I'd love to invite both you and Chris, maybe we can put together some written notes and recommendations on ways that people can get involved as a way to disseminate that information further. 
event. Thank you both so much. Um, as you said, Jennifer, uh, we could talk about this for much longer than just one hour. Um, <laughs> but I'm really grateful for, to both of you for, you know, giving us uh, a little bit of your experience in navigating all of this and for um, the participants will benefit from hearing both from uh, from you and from your organizations, Foley Hoag and uh, from GLAD. So really appreciate your time today.